welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary, the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. Do not be tempted to think that all of the stories of faith that are recorded in the Bible of our brothers and sisters in the family of God are just nice little stories that we can teach our children but really have no practical relevance for us today. Friends, we need to learn the lessons of 6,000 years of the plan of redemption. And God's remnant people in the last days need to sum up in their corporate experience uh, the lessons of all of the past. And so we're not playing church here. And don't be tempted to think that we're playing church and telling nice stories so we can be entertained and then go home and live our own lives the way that we want during the week and then come back and get recharged. We're dealing with life and death issues. We're dealing with the sense that we are a prophetic movement of the Bible and that on our shoulders rests a necessary response to Jesus, who is our husband, which... One or two of past ages, perhaps, in different times, have reflected back to him, but now the Lord is calling for a corporate body to reflect that to him. And in that sense, we need to grow up into the fullness of his love and his agape. So today, we're thinking about the subject of doubt and the temptation to doubt. And we've entitled this Escape from Doubting Castle. This is taken right out of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I know that was written in ancient English language, but it has been updated to modern English. But some of you who are familiar with Pilgrim's Progress know about Christian, who is the primary figure of it, and how he is captured by the giant who's called Despair. And he is thrown into the dungeon of Doubting Castle. And this is where despair lived. And there Christian is subjected to beatings daily. And many Christians are living in Doubting Castle who have been captured by the giant despair. And they've lost their joy and their song. But no one has to stay there. So giant despair says to his wife, diffidence. I like, that's interesting. Did you ever name your wife diffidence? What should I do with these Christians that we have locked up? And, and uh, she says, let's tell them there's no hope to give up their faith. This is where the end of their life is going to be spent, right here. And so he does that. And then the next day he goes back to his wife, Diffidence. And he says, now what should I tell them? Diffidence says, tell them to commit suicide. And so that's what despair does. He sends his minions back to the Christians who are in the dungeon and says, commit suicide. There's no hope for you. 
Dear friends, many times that's where doubt throws us in life. We're talking about where the rubber meets the road in our daily living and where the boots walk, where you live, where I live. Despair and doubt. Dear friends, you and I can escape Doubting Castle the same way that Christian did. You want to know how Christian escaped Doubting Castle? One day, he looked into his pocket and he said, What a fool I have been, he says. All along, I've had in my pocket a key which unlocks the door of Doubting Castle. You know what that key was called? The Word of God. So with the key of the word, Christian unlocked the doors of the dungeon of Doubting Castle, and he escaped, never to return. Friend, you can escape Doubting Castle and not be subject to giant despair. Now, there's a mystery that all of us go through that we need to unravel, and that is, why is it that so often we have been on cloud nine and we have enjoyed unusual happiness that we suddenly find ourselves in, and then, just like the hero in Pilgrim's Progress, suddenly we are plunged into the castle of giant despair. Things suddenly seem to be all going wrong. You know, this last week I had three funerals and one amputee to visit. Seems like everything is going wrong. Why? Well, the word of God unravels this mystery. First of all, number one. As a teen, Joseph, you remember, of the Old Testament, he was riding on high in the joy of his earthly father's favor, in the sunshine of his heavenly father, too. And suddenly, where does he find himself? Sold into Egyptian slavery. And he had had youthful dreams that were given to him, ostensibly from God, that he was going to have a great career. So, from the top of the world to the bottom of the world. And then, after that calamity, when in loyalty to God, he refuses to commit adultery in an alluring temptation, as his reward for purity, God lets him be thrust into an Egyptian prison. And it looks like God is playing games with Joseph, maybe even torturing him. Why did God give him those fantastic dreams of success and then apparently thrust him into the darkest failure when He had done nothing wrong to deserve it. And then I think about Elijah. Do you remember him? For three and a half years, he went through crushing heartache, and he wrestled with doubts during a long famine that came upon Israel. And finally, he gets to to see God's blessing there on Mount Carmel, and his prayers are answered, and oh, glory, it looks as though Israel has repented And the enemies, the Baal worshipers and their prophets uh, are going to be banished. The great revival and reformation is off to a good start for the nation. And then those influence of the prophets of Baal is ended. And now there is going to be smooth sailing in God's work. And then bang, when he's the most tired and he needs sleep, Elijah is thrust into the very depths of miserable despair. He runs for dear life. He's exhausted and is so depressed that he actually wishes he could die. You remember this story? And then there's Jeremiah. 
a very sincere but youthful prophet, and he watches a great revival and reformation begun by his king majesty, Josiah. And at last, God's son is beginning to shine in Israel, and the kingdom is on a way to a glorious spiritual success. And then suddenly the good king gets himself killed in some foolish adventure, and from then on it is endless heartache and sorrow for Jeremiah and the ruin of everything for Israel. Then finally I think of Jesus. After the heavenly anointing by the Holy Spirit at the River Jordan, and the Father himself embraces Jesus at his baptism, there's the high, correct? The high. Who wouldn't be on high if they heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You talk about a high. That was it for him. But then he suddenly finds himself, yes, driven by the same Holy Spirit that was at his baptism into a wilderness of dark, agonizing temptations. What's going on here? What's going on? God is training each of these persons for eventual success. And he is training you also. Now let's say a word on behalf of those who sincerely want to follow Jesus, and yet they meet setbacks and discouragements and frustrations and disappointments. It seems like their prayers are going nowhere. Could it be that perhaps God has not accepted them? We hear it all of the time, I've prayed and there's no answer to my prayers. They must stand on the outside. Is that the case? Watching the party that's going on inside. If God has accepted them as members of his family, why are they tormented by such fears and doubts and God isn't answering their prayers? Well, here's some great good news for them. Jesus had precisely the same problem. He was on and up and down experience. The up was his baptism, the brightest sunny day of his life when he heard that voice from heaven. Who wouldn't be on cloud nine forever after hearing that? But then, Mark says, immediately came the down. He felt himself driven into the wilderness of heart-rending temptation to doubt. Elijah had the same problem. His up was the glorious height of Mount Carmel. His down came immediately when he fled into his wilderness and felt himself a total failure, and he wanted to die. An awful temptation, dear friends, overthrew, almost overthrew Jesus right after that glorious baptism. Was he indeed the Father's beloved Son? If thou be the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread, he was tempted. He was in agony, not only from physical hunger and weakness, when for all of us, temptation is fierce, But also spiritually, Jesus was in agony. The tempter wrung his soul with plausible bad news, logic, and rationale. If you really are the Son of God, how in the world could you be bereft of friends and help here alone in this desert with wild animals all around you, hungry and emaciated and forsaken? You look awful. This This is no way for the Son of God to be. You must be a famous enemy of God. If you really are the Son of God, prove it. Take a bungee jump off the temple 
off the pinnacle. Settle it forever in your soul when you see God rescues you. And then you'll know that you are the Son of God. Oh, you're scared to do it, huh? Okay, then give up. Give up. Forget this hallucination that you are the Messiah. You never heard a real voice at your baptism. You only thought that you did. Join the crowd, the world, otherwise you'll never amount to anything. And finally on his cross, that barbed poison arrow tip that was shot at Jesus again, if thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Prove it by doing something no crucified criminal has ever been able to do. Easy if you're the Son of God. How can you otherwise expect us to believe you? You need to demonstrate it by coming down off of that cross. And that moment, dear friends, was Jesus' lowest downer. But he wasn't out. He chose to use the key of the word, and he believed the Bible. He believed the word. And even that voice at his baptism was nothing more than a direct quotation from the Bible words of the Old Testament. You hear that same voice, don't you, speaking to you in the Bible? Do like Jesus did. Make a choice to believe God's good news promises to you in his word. This is what it means to live under the new covenant or the promise of God. You see, all of God's word, all of God's promises are yes in the seed. Yes in Christ who is the seed. And the only way that we come into the picture of God's promises is our being in Christ, in him. But thank God, that's our way. That's our way out of giant despair's castle. You know, Christ was known as the son of David, wasn't he? Not only by physical ancestry, but because in his incarnation, he lived out the Psalms of David. And as the leadership of God's church condemned Jesus, so the divinely appointed leadership of his true church in the days of King Saul condemned David, his father. You see, Saul was the anointed of the Lord, and David's agony was not only the physical exertion of constantly fleeing from Saul, but wrestling with the greater temptation to doubt that God had truly anointed him to be the king of Israel when the anointed of the Lord condemned him. He had to overcome to believe that God would take care of him. And so we have David's psalms that were written during his exile. We have Psalm 57, and we have Psalm 59, for example, and repeatedly the future king begins by wrestling with fear, which is Old Covenant inspired. And before the end of the psalm, he erupts in New Covenant joy of believing that the Lord will not forsake him, but vindicate him. And then a millennium later, you have the Son of God, the Son of David, sent in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh which he had taken upon himself. He wrestles with the same temptation. Again, the Bible says he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin, triumphing again over our old covenant fears and emerging day by day into new covenant sunlight. 
believing God's promises. And this goes on continually in his earthly life until the greatest temptation of all old covenant belief, unbelief is when he's hanging there on the cross in the darkness and crying, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And there on the cross, he wrestles his way through the darkness into the sunlight of new covenant faith, and he cries out joyously as his heart was already bleeding to death, you who fear the Lord, praise him. He has not despised nor abhorred the afflicted, the affliction of the afflicted, that's me. Nor has he hidden his face from him. That's me. He heard. He heard. Psalm 22, verses 23 and 24. Jesus has taught us how to live in the sunlight under the new covenant. Jesus has taught us. Now, young people, Young people and teenagers especially wrestle with the constant fear and temptation of doubt for their future. They are afraid that they are not accepted by God. They are conscious of their sinfulness, and they are hesitant to believe in that God can really bless them, that God is really with them now. Well, the Bible says that everyone who will be saved at last will be a child of Jacob, And frequently, the Lord addresses his people as, O house of Jacob. And Jacob was a young man, a teenager and a youth. When uh, he was named Jacob, he was, you know what that means? It means deceiver or supplanter. Someone who is so self-centered that he wants to get ahead even when he's born with his twin brother. See? And if you think that you were better than that from your youth, well, you probably really don't know your own heart. You were born wanting to get ahead of everybody else. And the life story of Jacob is going to be encouraging for you to study. Because here was a man at at a number of points in his life where he felt God forsaken, especially that night when he tried to sleep, you know, on a stone for a pillow. I can't even sleep on some pillows. They feel like stones. And he knew that he had sinned, and he was keenly conscious of his own unworthiness, and we are too, and yet the Lord tried to assure him with a vision, with a dream of a ladder from heaven to earth right where he was with the angels of God ascending and descending on it. That was all to help him to know that heaven is closer to earth than he could ever dream. Jacob sometimes had trouble remembering that dream, Just like sometimes you have trouble remembering God's goodness to you. Jacob had plenty of disappointments and sorrows, and he had to spend a whole night wrestling with the Lord in prayer. But his name was changed from Jacob to Israel. Aren't you so glad that the the overcoming in Jesus Christ can change you from being a supplanter deceiver to an overcomer? That's what Israel means. If all I get is the name Israel, I'll be happy in heaven, an overcomer. And so your name is going to be changed. And please accept some encouragement, will you, young people, from the story of young Jacob? And for thousands of years, uh, thoughtful people have been reaching out, trying to feel that God is near to them. And one method that has often been 
recommended to reach out and feel God, and I want to bounce this off of some of your thinking here, is to practice the presence of God. Have you ever heard of that? Practicing the presence of God. And some think that they find it helpful, you know, to set an empty chair in front of them and just imagine that Jesus is sitting on that chair in front of them. That makes them feel that Jesus is near, you see, practicing the presence of Jesus, of God. But let me remind you that there are others who do similar things like fingering a rosary because it helps them or others, it helps them to feel that God is present by fingering the rosary. And some people wear a crucifix. And why do they do that? Because it makes them feel that Christ is near them. And practicing the presence of God is nothing more than the same thing, only another way. And so we have stained glass windows in churches and cathedrals. All of that is the same with all of those pictures and images. Why is that? To remind us that of God's presence, you see. I'm so thankful that Hayward Church has no stained glass windows or a cross to remind us of the presence of God. Because all of this tends towards rites and ceremonies and forced worship of God. Nowhere in the Bible does it encourage the idea of practicing the presence of God. Rather, it teaches us to remember that God is with us based on his word that says it. We cannot create God's presence by practicing it ourselves. It's another uh, self-motivated work is what it is. We cannot make God's presence a reality, but we can realize what is already the reality of his presence because his word has promised it. Both of the Old Testament and the New Testaments are emphatic in their rejection of even the slightest whiff of idolatry, and that's what this is, idolatry. No man hath seen God at any time, says John. Therefore, visual representations of God are absolutely useless. But what is helpful is what follows. If we love one another with agape, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us, and hereby we know with that we dwell in him and he in us because he hath given us his spirit. We have known and believed the love that God hath to us. He that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God. You talk about the presence of God and God in him. Read it. 1 John chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. Believe God's word there. You have the presence of God. You don't need to practice it by your own visualization or or self-generated ideas of him. The religion of Jesus is not based on anything that we can make or do or even imagine. It's based on the revelation of his love in his life, his death, his resurrection, his high priestly ministry, and his promises to return in person. It's truth that is far more tangible than human emotions or feelings or touching can evoke. It's truth that faith believes. It's the word that opens Doubting Castle's doors. Now, there was one who's called Doubting Thomas in the Bible. You remember him? And he was reassured, wasn't he, that what when he saw, uh, well, 
Doubting Thomas was reassured when he saw, uh, but Jesus said, no, here you go. Thomas said, I'll believe when I see it. You know, he's the first guy from Missouri, you know, even before the state of Missouri. He said, I'll believe it when I see it. My grandma used to say that. (laughs) But Jesus said, blessed and far happier is the one who believes because you not only have seen me, but how happy are those who believe without seeing me. We are closer to Jesus now than were the disciples by faith because they didn't perceive him by faith before the crucifixion. We have the blessed privilege 2,000 years later of perceiving him by faith and thus being closer to him now. That's John 20, verses 28 and 29. So don't try to practice the presence of God, but do practice believing God's word. And then your faith will grow. Now, according to the inspired interpretation of Isaiah 53, we can lay our sicknesses as well as our sins upon him. Did you know that Jesus bears not only our sins, but also our physical illnesses, our mental illnesses? Whatever we're off base, he bears it all, (laughs) you know, on every level. Somehow I believe both our physical illnesses as well as our sins go together. I I can't explain it, but the word associates them together as Jesus bearing them. And I note how in Psalm 103, the two are joined almost in the same breath where it says, all thine iniquities and all of thy diseases. And here also in Matthew's gospel, his inspired version says, our griefs and our sorrows and our iniquities All alike are laid upon him with infirmities and sicknesses. And if so, then we have something yet to learn about how Christ is our sin bearer and our sickness bearer. You can be thankful, I can be thankful that we have a sickness bearer. There's an indication of truth that is yet unappreciated in these words in Ministry of Healing, page two, or pardon me, uh, Testimonies, five volume. Volume 5 of the Testimonies, page 444, uh, Ellen White indicates, Sickness of the mind prevails everywhere. Nine-tenths of the diseases from which men suffer have their foundation here. Nine-tenths of our physical ailments start here in the head. She says in Ministry of Healing 241, The relation that exists between the mind and the body is very intimate. When one is affected, the other sympathizes. We have usually supposed that those statements have reference to people who are not church members, those who are on the outside, who don't know the Lord as we know him. I wonder if they could have meaning for us who are on the inside of the church, and even those of us who are workers in the church. We may not know if any conscious sin or anxiety, we may not know of any that troubles us, but could we suffer from some deep, deep-seated anxiety, some deep-seated discontent that is breaking down our life forces unconsciously. We don't know the source of it. I read of an interesting case, history of a lady at that time, she was 27 years of age, who was suffering from severe migraines. Severe migraines. And the psychotherapist noted uh, Uh, well, uh, prescribed for her drugs, 
you know, and she was taking the drugs, but the drugs didn't seem to help her. So the psychotherapist probed her unconscious through analysis and discovered that she had a deep-seated anxiety that had troubled her and was hidden ever since her childhood. And her mother, it, it came from this, that her mother had died when she was about two years of age. And the shock of being forsaken, apparently, by her mother had driven her to anger and to be frightened so that she felt very insecure and anxious ever after. But as she grew older, of course, she forgot the feelings until recall and the psychoanalytical psycho uh, process helped to identify it. And as some of those long silence chords began to vibrate again in the harp of her inner experience, she wept like a child, and the result was these migraines ceased miraculously. The Lord brought to her attention what, her, what was her unconscious problem. And now she could be healed of it by repenting. You know, we've been conditioned toward a tendency to doubt and anxiety and insecurity that is more deeply seated than we even realize. And that is more, the remedy is a trust in God, a faith that permeates more deeply into the roots of our very souls. I am a sinner. I was born one. My, my basic sin is a dist, distrust of God, a fear that in a time of real crisis that he's going to let me down, that he's going to forsake me, an anxiety that eats me out in the depths of my heart and I am called to overcome, even as Christ overcame. And it's a wondrous thought, a wondrous thought. What I suffer from, Jesus tasted to the fullest on Calvary when he cried out in despair, why hast thou forsaken me? And that was the atonement. And I wonder, my brother, my sister, you who are so dear to me, will the experience of the final atonement prepare us to trust God in the darkness of apparent forsakenness, even as Christ overcame. If so, that will be a very deep, deep work, won't it? A very deep work. And it will be a blessed work. A blessed work. I think of these words, the context is clear, that they must have reference to the closing work of God in his work in Zechariah chapters 12. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. And there is no evidence that there that the mourning or the weeping is going to be self-centered based on selfish desires or feelings of insecurity and wanting to be saved. Apparently, they will have learned to love Christ and not love themselves. Are you aware that in that chapter in Great Controversy, the time of trouble, the saints are not anxious about their own salvation or security? 
but their agony is entirely due to anxiety lest they should bring shame upon the name of the Lord Jesus. They have forgotten all about themselves. They can only think about him. And the result of that experience, says Zechariah, in that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Is that blessed experience of a deeper appreciation of the atonement of the cross, could that be the final atonement? The ancient Hebrews enjoyed a blessing that saved them from many of the ills that we modern men know that are so tense and anxious. Custom decrees that we not show our emotions, that we repress them, and we do it to our own hurt, you know. Why did Jesus weep? Why did he make himself so vulnerable? Jesus wept because he loved much. And if you have loved much and lost, I encourage you to weep. It's healing. To repress the weeping is a denial of the love for the one who is lost. Just as Ministry of Healing says, these repressed emotions of grief and anxiety, this is her quote, and discontent and remorse and guilt and distrust, they all tend to break down the life forces and to in, invite decay and death. By the suppression of our emotions, she says, the life forces are broken down and it subjects us to decay and death. The Hebrews did not repress these things. How often we read that they lifted up their voice and they wept freely, just like a little child. And with the weeping came release and freedom and health. Weeping may endure for a night, the Bible says, but joy cometh in the morning. Joy cometh in the morning. Modern man takes a pill instead of weeping through the night until the Lord gives joy again. Somehow what we need is to be found there in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ in his experience in our flesh. We don't need a pill to suppress it. Now just take that as general counsel. I'm not castigating the work of individuals and their practice of their arts. I'm saying what's primary here. Only the Lord can truly heal despair and anxiety and unbelief. We have pierced him. Zechariah says, when we come to sense what that means as a people, that there shall be a fountain opened for us. Joy will come in the morning. And I found comfort also in reading Great Controversy, where Ellen White says on page 219, Jesus is ever ready to speak peace to souls that are troubled with doubts and fears. This precious Savior waits for us to open the door of our heart to him and say, abide with us. Our life is a continual strife. We must war against principalities and powers, against spiritual wickedness and foes that never sleep. We must resist temptations and overcome as Christ overcame. When the peace of Jesus enters our heart, we are calm and patient under the severest trials. Wow. And it was as they were praying that Christian, our hero character in Pilgrim's Progress, 
uh, he, he became amazed at his forgetfulness as he was praying. Suddenly he blurted out, what a fool I am. Here I am, I'm lying in this stinking dungeon when I could be walking around freely. I have a key in my pocket called promise that will, I believe, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Wonderful, said Hopeful, his companion. That's good news, brother. Hurry, hurry, try it. And then Christian pulled the key out of his coat and he inserted it into the lock on the door and immediately the lock gave way and the door opened with ease. And then the pilgrims quickly fled from the dungeon and they made their way to the door leading into the castle yard and again the key opened the door. And then came the last iron gate and although the lock did not turn easily, it did So Christian and hopeful thrust open the gate and hastily made their escape from Doubting Castle. Join us again next time for the Word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.